Hello and welcome to the Susquehanna County Conservation District's Conservation Corner. I'm Don Hibbert. And I'm Courtney Bronze. And each week we bring you conservation topics and events from around the Endless Mountains. Well, long before the European settlers came to the New World, some amazing migrations were happening just out of plain sight. Each spring, great numbers of fish set out on a journey from the Atlantic Ocean, swimming hundreds of miles inland via rivers and eventually into smaller tributaries. These fish were a staple of the Native American diet and even found their way to the dinner plate of settlers as they began to learn the migration patterns the natives had learned over the centuries. Many animals from the top down relied on these species and some even relied on the species to carry out their own life cycle. So today, we're going to take a look at a few of these less familiar fish species and find out exactly what happened to them as modern development has taken hold and reduced or eliminated the migration route they've always used. So the first one we're going to start out talking about are freshwater eels. And freshwater eels are the only catadromous species of fish in North America. So you're probably thinking, what does catadromous mean? And it just means that they actually spawn in salt water, but they live their lives in fresh water. The American eel is found widely along the Atlantic and Gulf coasts, and the young eels found here will move upstream into smaller tributaries. American eels have a long slender body with tiny smooth scales that are actually embedded into their skin, and they have a long dorsal fin that extends about two-thirds of the way down their back, and the head of the eel is long and tapers to a small mouth with a lower jaw that sticks out just a little bit further than the upper jaw. They're typically yellowish-brown to dark olive in color, and in Pennsylvania, they typically only grow to about two to three feet, although they can get bigger. Uh, the Delaware River actually has the most abundant population of eels in PA because there's actually no dams on the river preventing the eels from migrating further upstream. So they have all been also been reported in the Ohio River watershed and the Potomac River watershed. Now because dams and obstructions, eels are actually rarely found in the Susquehanna River. While in freshwater, the eels can be found in areas of streams where they hide under rocks and logs and undercut banks. So the life cycle of the eel is actually pretty mysterious and they spawn way out in the Sargasso Sea, which is in the Northern Caribbean or the Bermuda region of the Atlantic Ocean. Two different species of eels arrive in these grounds to spawn each year. The American eel comes from the west and the European eel comes from the east. And the greatest mystery here is how the young eels of each species know which continent they're supposed to return to. So after the eels spawn, they die. And the larval eels are called leptocephali. And they're often referred to as glass eels. They're kind of a clear translucent color. And these eels drift in the ocean currents until they reach their continent. These young eels, now called elvers, enter river estuaries. And the females will actually swim many miles upstream, mostly at night. The male eels will remain in the lower parts of the river near the mouth. After remaining in the freshwater for about 10 to 20 years, give or take, the adult females migrate back downstream in the fall 
and they make their way back to the Sargasso Sea, where they'll spawn. Until the early 1900s, eels actually supported a commercial fishery in the Susquehanna and Delaware River. Adult eels were trapped on their downstream migration by low-in-the-river V-shaped wing dams. These barricades were made out of stone, so the eels would enter them from the wide upstream side, and then they would swim through the small opening downstream, and once they did that, they were trapped in a basket. What's left of some of these old eel weirs can still be seen today in parts of the Delaware and Susquehanna River watersheds. Today, eels are mainly caught by anglers for sport, but some say that they're actually really good to eat as well. I've never tried one, have you? No, I can't say as if I've actually tried them. Uh, I don't even know if I really have an interest in trying them, but... I, I don't either. They're too like snake-like, I guess. Supposedly they're a delicacy, I want to say, over in Asia. Hmm. Uh, not positive, but... And then, just to go back... Uh, I remember you sending me an article a while back about the eel weirs. Yeah. And how, um, I think it was, was it school students that did a project and tried to find them on uh, like Google Earth? Yep. And located quite a few of the old remains of the weirs that were used by Native Americans. So that's really cool. You can find that story on Google, I'm pretty sure. Uh, the second one we'd like to talk about is shad. So the American shad is an Andronomous species and that means they spend most of their lives out in salt water and then they swim up in the rivers and the tributaries and spawn in the freshwater. And so the American shad actually has a thin metallic body that varies in color from a greenish to a dark blue. It's has large dark shoulder spot that may be followed with several paler spots and uh, it also has scales that come together as belly to form a sawtooth edge and it has a deeply forked tail fin and uh, between the males and females the females are larger than the males so shad actually are native to western Atlantic Ocean and the east coast of Canada and the United States and the species is actually a broadcast spawner and spawns multiple times. And as adults, they inhabit the Atlantic Ocean and then migrate, as I mentioned, to the East Coast rivers in Canada and the U.S. to spawn. Adult American shad enter rivers to spawn as early as November in Florida and as late as May or June in the northern waters, all depending on weather and water temperatures. The peak spawning temperatures for American shad is 65.3 degrees Fahrenheit, and spawning typically occurs at sundown and continues until after midnight. Yeah, I remember that they're, uh, they're really sensitive to light, even like a full moon will bother the spawning. So, That's crazy. Yeah. So after hatching, the young American shad will descend from their streams in the fall, and juvenile American shad, upon reaching lengths of about three quarters of an inch to an inch will begin to form schools for their downstream migration. So unfortunately, uh, back in the 1800s, grain mills created the dams. Uh, people are familiar with the history of Susquehanna County. A lot of grain mills uh, formed on those smaller tributaries. And that actually reduced the habitat uh, where the shad could spawn. 
and as the industrial age took hold, uh, unfortunately, more and more electricity was required. And that meant hydroelectric dams were also built on the larger rivers like the Susquehanna. These dams either restricted or eliminated migratory passages for the shad altogether. And that, of course, reduced their numbers. Now, before the dams were created, it's actually mentioned on several different reading materials that I went, came across. Uh, shad were reported to have reached the Susquehanna headwaters near Cooperstown, New York. And this is actually a roughly 640 mile journey from the sea and the longest recorded for the species on the Atlantic coast. So pretty cool fact there as well. And a quick side story, uh, for thousands of years along the Susquehanna River Valley, the bloom time of the service berry, I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, shrub, but uh, it coincided with the massive spring shad fish run up the river. And so the nickname of that uh, service berry was actually shad bush or shad blow. Okay. I had known service berry to go by those names, but I never knew why. Yeah, so cool. kind of a cool side story. And um, a lot of people only know that shrub as shad bush or shad blow. Throughout the 19th century, the water quality of the Susquehanna River was greatly diminished. The culprits were mainly coal mining operations in the north and west branches and siltation and erosion resulting from extensive timbering operations, especially in the West Branch. Industrial and agricultural development in the Lower Basin and sewer discharge from growing riverside cities also added to the problem. And the shad population declined sharply in the upper Chesapeake Bay after 1971. Overfishing, poor river conditions, and the flooding effects related to Tropical Storm Agnes, which passed through the basin in June of 1972, were all among the contributing factors. Uh, even as early as the 1950s, the technology was beginning to develop to integrate fish passage into hydroelectric dam design. And uh, of course, as decades passed, the technology was refined. So during the 1985 to 1998 uh, span of time, over 350,000 adult shad were passed above the Conwingo Dam or transported and released to spawn above the constructed dams on the Susquehanna. During that same period, the Van Dyke Hatchery stocked over 150 million juvenile shad. So the result was the annual return of shad to the Congo Dam. And that population has increased steadily from fewer than 2,000 to over 100,000 fish. A slow but persistent restoration effort. So I hope you enjoyed a little history behind uh, those two fish species and their migrations. And hopefully you learned a little bit more about it. So we do have a couple events for you today too. Um, the first events are at Salt Springs State Park. The first one is the first spring hike. It's April 10th, which is this Saturday at 1 p.m. Um, all hiking levels are welcome, and they will meet at the park, and then the group will decide which trail they're going to hike. And the fee is a free will donation. And then on Sunday, April 11th, 
from 2 to 4 p.m. They're having Alaska Adventures. So Sandy Babuka, who was a tour guide at Denali National Park and Preserve for four years and a lifelong environmentalist, will be sharing some of her adventure stories. So I'll meet at the Wheaton House for registration and then you'll move to the Williams Pavilion for the presentation. You can set at the picnic tables in the pavilion or if you want, you're also welcome to bring your own seating. The fee is also a free will donation. And the NAPA rail trail is still going strong. Got lots of events going on. But uh, second Saturday trail yoga this Saturday, April 10th, is starting at 9.30. And they recommend that you meet at the Uniondale Trailhead. They ask that you please pre-register by emailing trails at nep.net. Or you can call them by phone at 570 679-9300. Well, I guess that does it for today's show. If you have questions related to our shows, you can contact the Conservation District by calling 570-782-2105. If you missed a portion of today's show, you can go to our website, www.suscondistrict.org, and find our Conservation Corner page with past episodes links to information about past episodes, and a contact form where you can reach out and ask questions or make comments about the show. You can even suggest ideas for future shows. You have been listening to the Susquehanna County Conservation District's Conservation Corner. I'm Courtney Bronze. And I'm Don Hibbard saying, enjoy the outdoors.